guys, of course, remain standing in honor of the reading of God's Word. Um, moving out of chapter 10, we've been in Matthew chapter 10 for a while, and uh, it's always exciting to start a new chapter for me. Um, so Matthew chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is God's Word. You may have a seat. So we're in Matthew chapter 11. And as you can see, in this chapter we're moving out of a discourse that we've been studying for, uh, for several weeks, uh, maybe uh, several months by this point. Um, and so we're moving out of this course, and you know that in Matthew's Gospel, that's a big deal. Because Matthew has chosen to include several major discourses or monologues from Jesus in their entirety. Um, whereas the other Gospel writers kind of break them up and break the teachings up, Matthew puts them all together. And so this is a big deal when we transition into a discourse or out of a discourse. It's kind of like uh, landmarks in Matthew's Gospel. Um, so we're moving out of the disciples' discourse and we're changing themes. You know, for the last several weeks since we began chapter 10, we've just talked about discipleship. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Um, what it means to make other disciples of Jesus, which is always our job. Um, and as we move out of that theme, that doesn't mean that we've moved on past that idea. We, we should never move beyond the concept of making disciples. Just like we never move past the gospel, we also never move beyond the, the mandate to make disciples. So even as we're learning and we're shifting themes, hopefully you would be learning in order to take it home, chew on it, apply it to your life, and then... Teach others, teach, teach your kids, teach your co-workers, use the principles that we're learning to, uh, to, to share the gospel. So just, just, I guess, by way of warning, don't think that we're done with discipleship and now we move on to something new. But we are moving out of discourse and we're changing themes. And uh, before we get into the, the verses themselves, I want to take just a minute and kind of set up what we're going to be studying for the next several months. Um, Specifically, verses or chapters 11 through 13. We moved out of discipleship, and if you wanted to put a title on uh, the theme of the next three chapters, you could um, title it uh, Rising Disappointment or Rejection or Opposition to Jesus as King. In Matthew's Gospel, we saw his, uh, his message in the Sermon on the Mount, and then we saw his miracles. Um, in chapters uh, 8 and 9. And then in chapter 10, Jesus has trained His disciples and is sending them out. And now in chapters 11, 12, and, and kind of into 13, we're going to see how people are responding 
to Jesus and his message and his methods. Um, and, and that is mostly with opposition, uh, challenges, questions, doubts, um, that sort of thing. So for today, um, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6, and we're going to talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist brings a question to Jesus. Now, this is sort of one end of the spectrum of questioning. And we're going to see John's question is not a sinful question. He's just kind of wondering, asking a question. We'll talk about that today. Not that big of a deal. This is the okay type of questioning. Um, if, you, if you can look with me at verse uh, 20 of chapter 11, you can see there it says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So there we see that the cities where most of the work had been done, they've rejected Christ. They've rejected His message. They've rejected His men. And so He kind of pronounces these woes, denounces them for their rejection. And then in verse 25 through 30, verse 25 is, is really important. Because at that time Jesus declared, so he's, he's praying, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. That's what we talked about um, a couple weeks ago when we talked about the division, that, that Christ, or God, the Lord is sovereign over the division. That when it comes to the grace of God going out, and we would ask ourselves, why would this person not be saved? And this person is. We see here God is sovereign over that. That... He reveals Himself to whom He wills. And such is His gracious will. Then we get into chapter 12. Um, verses 1 through 14 are two different examples of the, the Pharisees challenging Jesus. They're coming to Him and they're, they're kind of challenge, challenging his, his methods and the things that He's doing. And that sort of culminates in verse 14 of chapter 12 where it says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against Him how to destroy Him. So that's the other extreme. you got John, who's we're just going to see, he's just kind of asking a question, kind of wondering, has some doubts. And then the other extreme is the Pharisees who say, we've got to get rid of this man. We've got to, he has to be done away with. That's the other extreme of the, of the doubt and the opposition and the, the disappointment in, in the coming of Christ. Um, then the rest of chapter 12 um, we, we see several different instances where the scribes and the Pharisees are coming to Jesus demanding to see a sign. In other words, you need to prove to us that you have the authority to be saying and doing the things that you're doing. More opposition. And ultimately, Jesus is being rejected as the Messiah. Now, He hasn't said yet, He hasn't come out and blatantly said, I am the Messiah, but in His teaching and in His works... He's showing that this is who He is. And they are rejecting Him outright and saying, you need to prove it again. And you need to prove it again. And you need to prove it again. And every time um, they see these things, they reject Him, they reject His teaching. And then when they demand signs, as we'll see in a little bit, He, he for the most part, says, no, sorry, I'm not going to bow down to you and, and prove myself to you. That's through chapter 12, okay? Chapter 13 is, is almost like Matthew's response to all this. He, he shows parables that Jesus gives time after time, parable after parable after parable, explaining to these people that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God 
and, and Christ as the Messiah bringing in this kingdom is not what you think it is. We've said over and over, we'll keep, we'll keep uh, uh, reiterating this fact that the Jews had this picture in their mind of what the kingdom was supposed to look like and what the Messiah was supposed to look like. Jesus comes completely different than they had expected. The kingdom is not looking like they expected. And so in all these parables, they're all about the kingdom. And basically he's saying, it's not what you think. The kingdom of heaven is nothing like you have expected it to be. And so he answers. So that's... 11, 12, and 13, that's kind of where we're going to be going for the next several uh, weeks and months as we transition out of discipleship. And I just wanted to kind of lay that out so that you know, hopefully you'll be reading this stuff in the weeks ahead to prepare, you know that the idea is there's rejection and opposition and, and challenges brought to Jesus. So we go back to chapter 11, and, uh, and let's just pick up in verse 1. I'm going to go verse by verse through verse 6. And then I've got four points of kind of application or takeaways that we can get from this section. Verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now most, if not all, commentaries that you read, and I agree, say that the chapter division here is, is bad. That this verse should have actually been at the end of chapter 10. I agree because it doesn't really fit with anything that's happening. But because it's here, I'm going to keep it all together. Uh, because when it says, when Jesus had finished instructing, or like at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, um, it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, that's how you know it's, it's concluding up a monologue or, or a, a discourse. Um, but they put it in chapter 11, so we're going to take it with chapter 11. Not that big of a deal. We can deal with it. Um, What's happening, as we see clearly, is after Jesus has called His disciples out of the multitudes, He calls these twelve, He equips them with power and authority, He instructs them, He warns them, He comforts them, He prepares them, He's kind of pushed them out to go, and then He gets back to work. Now what's really cool about that, I think, is in our culture, oftentimes, especially if you're the CEO of a company, you, you delegate responsibility so that you don't have to do anything. Um, more than likely, Bill Gates does not have anything to do with the day-to-day -day affairs of Microsoft because he's head honcho. He pays people to do that. With Jesus, it's, it's, it's a lot different. He is in control and he delegates this work and as they go out, he gets right back to work. The same thing he was doing before. And we see that he's back to his main duty of teaching and preaching. This is Jesus' main job. I'll say this as many times as I can um, for one reason, because it gives me a little bit of uh, honor in, in, in the duty that I have. Jesus was a preacher. Contrary to what many people think, He was a preacher. He taught and He preached wherever He went. And there is a difference between teaching and preaching, and He did both. Now, in, there's this kind of story that floats around where a young seminary student goes to his professor and says, could you please explain to me the difference between teaching and preaching? And the man says, son, if you don't know the difference between teaching and preaching, you've never heard preaching. There is a difference. And, and all good preaching contains teaching. Um, and Jesus did both. Now, this is how I explain it to Case. So I, I explained to him, I, I, we walked through this, this one verse yesterday. And I was explaining to him, and I've done this before. 
the difference between teaching and preaching because he talks like he wants to preach someday. He likes to... And so I explained to him, you know, there's a difference between teaching and preaching. I say, Case, this is teaching. The Bible says, children, obey your parents. That's teaching. I just told him, I gave him instruction, gave him information. And I'll say, okay, but this is preaching. Case, the Bible says that to disobey your parents is a sin. And sin is an offense to a holy and righteous God. And it makes Him very angry when we sin against Him. And He has to punish sin because He's a good judge. And if you will turn away from your sin and trust in Christ, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, you can be forgiven and you don't have to be punished. But if you want to hold on to your sin and not trust Christ, you will spend eternity in hell separated from God forever. I'll tell him that. He's heard that several times. That's the difference. Now notice, you don't have to scream and spit and holler and sweat to be preaching. A lot of people are under the impression that if you're not spitting and sweating, you're not preaching. And then we have these guys who say, well, he's more of a teacher than a preacher. No. Preaching is, is heralding the good news. It is publicly proclaiming something, whereas teaching is just conveying information. And in any good sermon will contain both. It will contain teaching and it will contain preaching and you put them together. Paul, when he was instructing Timothy at Ephesus how to handle church life, he said, until I return, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And that's kind of our blueprint for expositional preaching. You read the text, you explain the text, and you exhort with the text. It's simple. And Jesus did both. He taught and he preached everywhere he went. And it says in their cities, more than likely it's talking about Chorazin and Capernaum and Bethsaida, this area around Galilee where he spent done most of his ministry and the same cities that he will denounce later on in chapter 11. So Jesus delegates responsibility and then he gets right back to work. Jesus is a good model for any minister or any, uh, anybody who wants to be in any type of uh, leadership capacity. Just because you delegate the work doesn't mean you sit down and hang out. You continue in the same work and you remain diligent. And so Jesus is back to work, but then in verse 2 it says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. Now again, the verse stops in the middle of a sentence, which kind of bugs me, but I'm just going to leave it and we'll look at verse 2. We're reintroduced to John the Baptist. This is not the John who wrote the Gospel of John. This is John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, we read that Jesus heard that John had been arrested and he departed into Galilee. And that's all we heard. Now John is reintroduced and he's in prison from his arrest. Now if you later we'll, we'll see what happened was John being the good preacher that he was um, was preaching there was a man the king of the Jews was Herod Antipas he had taken his brother Philip's wife and married her John again being a good preacher goes to the political leader and says you need to submit to God's law. You should not have taken your brother Philip's wife. Of course usually doesn't work out very well John ends up in prison. So he's in prison 
And it says that he heard about the deeds of the Christ. Now, in this time period, if you were in prison, you were pretty much solely uh, reliant on outside people, your friends and your family members, to bring you food, bring you water, bring you clothing, and keep you, you know, um, up to date with current events and things that were going on outside. That's why when Jesus is talking about how we treat our brothers and sisters that we studied last week, he says, I was in prison and you came and visited me. That's the, the idea here. When you were in prison, you had to have people coming back and forth to talk and relay messages and, and feed and take care of you. So John is in prison and he has heard about the deeds of the Christ. Now this is interesting because in verse 1, Matthew says, Jesus. And then in verse 2, he says that John heard about the deeds of the Christ. We know that Christ means Messiah, which means the anointed one. So what this is saying, what Matthew says is, John is in prison and he heard of the deeds of the Messiah, the, the messianic deeds. The reason I believe that Matthew uses this terminology, again, is because Matthew's trying to convince his readers that Jesus is the Messiah and because what we're about to study in this little uh, pericope here is, is centered on the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and John is questioning that. And so he says that John heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He heard about the messianic deeds. And so John sent word by his disciples, verse 3, and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So here... John the Baptist is questioning the ministry of Jesus. And let's just examine this question and then we'll talk about why this is why, why he's asking this question. First part of the question, are you the one who is to come? I believe that there's sufficient Old Testament um, scripture to support the fact that when he says the one who is to come, for John that meant Messiah. So he's saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is to come? Now think about that title in this time period. A lot of times, we might kind of think that there was no such thing as, as a Christian um, in, in, uh, in, in a spiritual sense, not with the title Christian, that came later, but in the spiritual sense, no such thing as a Christian until after Jesus came and died and came back from the dead, and then at Antioch they were first called Christians, and that's when they were Christians. What we see here is that for the Jews, if you were a true God-fearing, God-honoring Jew, you were truly a part of the church, universal, that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and goes all the way to the end of time, you were looking forward to the one who is to come. They knew Genesis 3.15. There will be one who comes from the seed of the womb of, of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And so all of the God-fearing Jews, the true spiritual Israel, they were always looking forward to the one who is to come. We look backwards at the one who came. They were looking forward to the one who is to come. The song we sang, which is um, speaking of God, you have saved your, your favorite nation. We're not talking about America. We're not talking about Israel. We're talking about spiritual Israel. The, the Israel of God, Paul says in Galatians. True Christians. So, are you the one who is to come? Or, shall we look for another? 
Now this tells us a lot about the character of John. And we'll, we'll hear about the character of John in weeks to come. John is saying, first of all, I've been looking, we've been looking, we've been waiting, preparing the way for the one, the Messiah. And if you're him, that's great, that's awesome. We're, we're, we're excited. But if you're not him, we've got to get back to work. Our work is not done until we have found the one who is to come. John and his disciples were about a very good business of looking forward to the one who is to come. And so we see even in this question, you see kind of the good character of John. He's not arguing. He's not challenging. He's not in opposition. He's just wanting to know, do I need to get back to work or do I need to send my men somewhere or are you the one? Now, the reason that this question is, has arisen um, kind of uh, comes about, it becomes more clear when you consider John's present circumstance here. Um, if you will, turn with me back to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to read some, some passages of Scripture and we'll do a little bit of turning here. As I want you to be able to see this stuff with your eyes. And we've, we've studied this, but I um, want you to see it again. Matthew chapter 3, um, beginning in verse 7. You can see there the, the heading from my chapter says, John the Baptist prepares the way. So that's what's happening here. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his weed into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So that was how John would preach about the one who is to come. That's one section. John's own preaching. Okay, now let's just keep reading in verse 13 of this same chapter of Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when John was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, or when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. John was there for all of that. He saw this. He heard this. He said these things. Now, turn with me to the book of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. And here we're going to see sort of a different perspective on that same event. John, chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 29. The next day... He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, listen to what John says, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So there, we, again, we have more of, of John the Baptist's own attestation to who Jesus was. Behold the Lamb of God. Here He is. I saw the heavens open. The Father spoke. God even told me that the One who comes and the Holy Spirit comes and doesn't leave, that's the One. I saw it happen. Therefore, this is the One. Alright, now turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 4. And here we're going to see Jesus' own words inaugurating His earthly ministry. Luke chapter 4 beginning in verse 16. It says, And He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me, that's important, to proclaim good news to the poor, that's important. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, that's important, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End Old Testament quote. Verse 20, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now that is probably one of the best examples of a short and concise Christ-centered Old Testament expositional sermon. Here's what it says, and here I am. That is Jesus' own inauguration of His ministry. So we have John preaches. He's coming. He's, he, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. He's got a winnowing fork in His hand. He's bringing judgment. He's going to burn the chaff. Then Jesus shows up and He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's the one I was talking about. Jesus comes, reads this Messianic passage from the Old Testament and says, Here I am. But John's in prison. John gets arrested. He's in prison. Matthew 4, Jesus finds out John's in prison. He departs to Galilee. Doesn't do anything about it. John's still in prison at this point. So despite his preaching... Preparing the way, despite saying, He's here. The Messiah is here. The one whom I told you is bringing vengeance and bringing um, you know, His winnowing fork and He's got the axe laid at the root of your tree. That guy, He's here. And then here John sits in prison under a Jewish king who only has authority because the Roman government put him there. It was Rome's idea to put the, the Herods into power. So this is not exactly what a Jew would have expected when it comes to... The kingdom 
of God, especially John. John the Baptist would, was what we would call in our day a fire and brimstone preacher. The axe is laid. You better straighten up. Repent. He's coming. There will be judgment. There's nothing wrong with that type of preaching, by the way, because it's in the Bible. But here John is in prison. Cold, dark, stony prison. Prison bars. Jesus has come. He preached this sermon here in, from Isaiah about His coming. He says, I'm here. And He's fulfilled some of this stuff. He's healing. There is restoration. But there are parts of the Messianic prophecies that have not been fulfilled. As a matter of fact, if you were to look up this passage that Jesus read, He doesn't finish the whole verse. At the end of the verse is actually uh, the rest of the verse about judgment. So, this reality, I believe, is why John is asking this question. He's preached. He's prepared. Jesus has come. He has heard about the Messianic deeds. He has heard about these miracles but he's in prison. He's wondering, I mean, are you really the one who is to come? Because when I read it, it said vengeance and, and the winnowing fork and I was telling everybody this and, and that's not happening yet. It's not what the Jews thought would happen when the Messiah came. Now look back at Matthew chapter 11, verse 4. Jesus responds, and Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. Now right here, I'm going to insert Luke 7.21 because Luke adds something that Matthew doesn't add. In that hour, He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, He bestowed sight. So John's disciples come. Are you the one who has to come or shall we look for another? Jesus says, go tell John what you see and hear. Boom, 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 boom. Performs these miracles. Jesus performs miracles so that they can see what? Messianic deeds. The deeds of the Messiah. What they've already known was taking place. Now, what I think is very interesting, in John's Gospel, whenever he refers to the miracles of Jesus, he uses the word signs. And the word sign, S-I-N-G, means that the miracle was not the end in itself, but it pointed to something else. It, it, if you want to say it, signified something, or we would say signified. So, Jesus does these miracles, and they were signs. They point to greater realities. And we talked about this when we went through um, chapter 8 and 9. Jesus heals the leper. And we see that that's a great physical miracle, but the reality of the spiritual reality that it was signifying was that we are all sinners, and we all have this grotesque and, and disgusting disease of sin that's rotting away at our spirits. And, and Christ comes in the flesh, taking on our flesh, and, and connects Himself, unites Himself with our flesh. And rather than Jesus contracting leprosy, we contract His purity. We are cleansed of our sin by Him. Or when Jesus gives sight to the blind, we say, hey, that's great, that's awesome. But the reality is that we're all spiritually blind. We can't see the goodness of God and the glory of God. And, and Scripture says that Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So in our natural state, we can't even see the goodness of God. Or, or when Jesus would uh, make a lame man walk. It's a great miracle. Really cool. But the spiritual reality is that we are all spiritually lame. Unable to walk. Unable to, to get up and bring ourselves to God. We can't do that. 
We have to have a miracle performed in us so that we can even begin to move towards God. Or when he gives hearing to the deaf. That's great. But the reality is that apart from Christ, we're all spiritually deaf. We cannot even hear the gospel correctly. Bible teaches you can't even read Scripture and it makes sense apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And of course, the, the ultimate when He raises someone from the dead, hey, that's really cool. But what's even cooler is that in our natural state, we are all dead in trespasses and sins and God comes and gives us life. The Holy Spirit comes in to give us life from our death in sins. And that is salvation. And so, Jesus does these things so that they can see them. He's been doing messianic deeds. He performs some more so that they can see. And we know that they're signs, so they point to greater realities. All this is coming together. John's heard it. Now, Jesus says, He does it again. He says, now, go tell John what you hear and see. In other words, John's going to get the same proof that he already had. He had already heard of the Messianic deeds. Here's some more Messianic deeds. Go tell John about the Messianic deeds. That's what he says. Go tell John what you hear and see. Watch my miracles. Listen to my teaching and my preaching. Report that to John. Verse 5. Jesus says these things. He, he kind of sums up His miracles. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. What Jesus does right there in that quote is He sums up the Old Testament prophecies concerning what will happen when the Messiah comes. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 29, 18 and 19. That's a messianic prophecy. Notice, deaf, hear, eyes, see, poor, worshiping God. Jesus says, the blind have their sight, the deaf, hear, the poor, have good news preached to them. You see what he's, he's summing this up. Turn with me to Isaiah 35. I want you to see this one too. Isaiah chapter 35. This is one of the premier passages um, concerning the coming of the Messiah that links it to all of the things that Jesus did in His earthly ministry as far as uh, signs and wonders. Isaiah 35, and look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Again, notice the references to blind and, and lame and deaf when the Messiah comes. This is what's going to happen. John knew this. John read his Old Testament. He knew all these things. He had heard of the Messianic deeds. So what Jesus does when He says, Go and tell John what you see in here. He does the miracles. Then he says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the poor have good news preached to them. He's saying, John, read your Bible. Look what it says. And John would have known this passage, and John would have known Isaiah 35 also includes verses 1 through 4. 
In verse 4 specifically, it says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. And I would venture to say, John's thinking, I'm in prison and He has not come to save me. He's got 4B down. When he's preaching, he's preaching vengeance, the recompense of God. Get ready. He gets put in prison, he forgets 4A. Be strong, fear not. Don't be anxious, don't worry. It's all going to happen in its time. So Jesus, when He sends this word back to John, He's saying, in essence, if we can kind of sum up this idea, what He's saying is, John, look what's going on. You've heard about the, the deeds of the Messiah. Now, look what's happening. Prophecies are being fulfilled. Maybe not all at one time. Maybe not how you think they should be fulfilled. But they are being fulfilled. And even that one passage that you're stuck on in Isaiah where you're preaching judgment, remember, you're missing the other part. Even if you're in prison, it will come. Vengeance will come. You will be set free someday, but maybe not yet. So be strong. Have no fear. John the Baptist knew that the Messiah was coming. He even acknowledged this is Him. He had heard of the messianic deeds. He already had all the info that his disciples were going to come back and bring to him. But he was missing a few key points. And verse 6, I think, kind of sums up this whole idea together. What tells us what John's problem may have been. Verse 6 says, Jesus continues, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What Jesus does here is He warns against unbelief based on false assumptions. And I'll show you how that works. First, blessed is the one. This is a, a beatific form. It's written like a beatitude. We, we spent a week on every one of those. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who need. So we, we understand this idea. When He says blessed, that doesn't mean blessed like we often think someone blessed me with a gift. This is blessed and it means an intense inner happiness and joy that does not fluctuate based on outward circumstances, earthly things. It's, it's just inner spiritual joy. So, And it's characteristic of Christians only. The lost world does not have this blessedness and this joy. So Jesus says that blessedness, that joy will be characteristic of the man who is not offended by me. The word offended, scandalizo. You can hear the word scandal in there. And it means to cause to, um, to, to fall into sin or to push into unbelief. And then he says, by me or by who I am in reality. Blessed is the one who is not pushed into unbelief by the truth concerning me, not your assumptions. John, now that you are hearing the truth and you're going to realize the truth, don't be offended because it does not mean you're getting out of prison. And we know John doesn't get out of prison with his, with his head on his shoulders. So John had met Jesus. He had baptized Jesus. He had heard the voice of the Father over Jesus. He knew the prophecies. His doubt comes when he's in prison. He's hearing of certain messianic things come true. But the other things that may have been assumptions of the Jews were not happening. Rome was still in power. John was in prison. There was no vengeance. There was no recompense yet. And so John questions. Because the coming of the Messiah did not look like John thought it would look. And so Jesus says, John, read your Bible. 
open it up, study it more. Even if you stay right where you're at, it says, don't be anxious. Don't be, to, to, to fear not. Wait on the Lord. So the truth, when he says, by me, if ended by me, the truth about Jesus is based on understanding God's word properly and not going beyond it with personal assumptions or letting your current situation affect your interpretation. In other words, Jesus is saying, John, don't look at the bars. Stop looking at the bars. Stop looking at the rocks. Stop looking at whatever sunlight you may see. Stop looking at the shackles and read your Bible. I'm here. It doesn't matter where you are. I'm still Messiah. I'm still here. That's the point of this little story. So now, four points of application concerning this, this doubt that John the Baptist had. First, open and inquiring, questioning, and doubt is okay. Open and inquiring doubt is okay. John asked this question. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Like I said, you can see in that John's not asking to challenge. He's not arguing. He's saying, hey, if you're not the one, we're ready to get back to work. Compare that to later. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Matthew 12, 38-39. John comes and says, Hey, are you the Messiah? Jesus says, I'll show you. He does signs. The, the Pharisees and the scribes come and say, We need to see a sign. Jesus says, No way. You'll get one sign, the sign of Jonah. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of the ground. What we see here is that when you ask, when you have questions, you're wondering about stuff, you really want to honor the Lord, you really want to know, not because you're challenging, but because you really care, it's okay. And God wants you to ask those questions and He wants you to dig deep and He wants you to find out the truth. Um, Chastity. Messed me on Facebook the other day. Asked me a question. I mean, a question about 17 feet deep in theology that most people have no business asking. And, and a lot of people, if they asked me this question, I'd say, you're just trying to argue. I'm not, I'm not going to waste my time on you. But I knew that she was actually wanted to know the answer. And so I answered her question, sort of. <laughs> uh, I uh, equaled my doubt, or put my doubt with her doubt. Um, but that's okay. When it comes to deep stuff, when you really want to know because you want to worship God better and you want to know God more and you want to know what His Word says more, it's okay to have questions and to doubt and to wonder as long as you're taking that text and you're wrestling with it. It's okay. And that's what John's doing. And Jesus, we're going to see, He goes on and He just takes John and, and, I mean, and He says, among those born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. This dude you know, is, is an amazing man. So it's okay. Secondly, Jesus' timing might not be your timing. Or you could say the timing of the Lord is not yours or um, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. You could go to Isaiah uh, passage. If you're in a place, and some of you may be here, if you're in a place where it seems like God has forgotten you, maybe like John, hey, I'm in prison. You know, this is not what I expected. And we get there, we have those times where you're thinking, you know, Jesus heard about my situation and He just went to Galilee. Examine the reasons why you think God 
should be acting differently. Because I would suggest that a proper combing of Scripture would remind you that in those times of suffering and affliction and, 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 and trouble, that we're supposed to rejoice. That God puts us through those to test us and to mold us and to shape us. And if we're under the impression that God should be acting different towards me right now, we're wrong. He's not wrong. He's doing exactly what He has decreed He's going to do from eternity past and will always do, and He's never changed. So count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2-4. We've studied that several years back. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Psalm 34, 19. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119, 67. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 119.71. It's good. It's a good thing. It is good for us. Would you rather be doing all the things you ever wanted to do and happy and separated from God, not in His Word, not close to Him, not learning His statutes? Not me. I would rather be afflicted and know that I'm really close to the Lord. And so, it's a good thing. When, time of, when in times of affliction and you're pressured to question God, spend much time, much time examining your own perspective first. Ask yourself, why do I think God should be acting differently right now? Because I would say nine times out of ten, we have some assumption about God that He's not told us. He's not given us that about Himself. He's told us something completely different. We just think He should be treating us better and and so we have to um, examine our perspective. Number three, always use Scripture properly. That's key. Properly as your guideline for judging godliness. You're not properly in all caps because we can use Scripture all day long and if we're using it wrong, um, it's not going to help us. Always use Scripture properly as your guideline for judging godliness. And when I say godliness... That doesn't mean judging people to see if they're acting right. This godliness would be um, to judge to see if every situation and all things are, are going according to the, the character and aligned with the plan and the will of God. Godliness as a whole. When you're judging things around you, your life or the other, other people's lives or, or situations, and you want to see, is this happening according to the will of God? Always... Use Scripture properly. Because remember, John knew the Scriptures, but Jesus knew them better. And Jesus used Scripture to confirm His Messiahship to John. Go back to the Bible, John. Just keep reading, John. Go back to the Word. A good example of this that actually ties into this idea of, of signs and miracles. Knowing Scripture properly. The Bible actually tells us about false signs. Listen to this. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Matthew 24, 24. False Christs means false Messiah, which means false anointed one. 
Turn on TBN. How many of them claim to have an anointing from God, a special anointing? What they're saying is, I am a special anointed one. I'm a Messiah. I'm a Christ. If somebody says anointed one, that means Christ. And you can call them out and say, oh, so you're saying that you're a Christ. All Christians have the same anointing. It's all the same. Nobody has more or less than anybody else. And Jesus says, there will be false Christ who come and they will perform signs and wonders and try to lead away even God's chosen people. Now, in the Bible, when a man of God would come and he would be preaching the Word of God, that's when most of the signs and wonders happen. It was to validate the message. You preach a message and somebody says, why am I supposed to believe you? You perform a sign. They're even called the signs of an apostle in the New Testament. The apostles were men who carried the message. So they would carry the message and they would perform the signs of an apostle and people would say, now we know these men are from God. Jesus says people will come and do false signs. Now how do we know? If the signs are there, what do we look for? We look for their message. It, it is now flipped. Because we have the completed message. There's no more message that we need validating besides this one. There's no new revelation. So when somebody comes and performs a sign, now we judge their doctrine, their message. And again, 11 times out of 10, people who claim to be doing these signs and these wonders, more than likely their theology's off, their doctrine's off. Ask them, what do you believe about the Trinity? What do you believe about Jesus? And they're going to be off the deep end somewhere. Their theology is off. Therefore, their signs and their wonders are the signs and wonders of a false Christ. But if you don't know your Bible very well, you wouldn't know that. You don't know that. You just say, hey, the people running around all the time, hey, they're doing signs. We must follow them. They must be of God. And Jesus says, no, there will be people who will do signs and wonders. They're not of God. They're false. So know your Bible well and use the Bible properly to discern godliness. And just as John and his disciples, when we are face to face with Jesus and we want to know truth, this is what he's going to put in your face. He's going to force you to deal with the text. And this is big. At this church, this is big. And this is what I believe is going to separate our church from almost every other church in the, in the region. Is because when somebody comes to me and says, well, why don't we do this? Or why doesn't Access Church do this? Or why don't you have this? I'm going to say, deal with the text. Show me where God said, do that, and we'll do it. That's going to be that, that's our, our driving um, uh, regulative principle is what it's called. The principle for our worship and our gatherings is the Word of God. What He has specifically commanded, that's what we'll do. What He's not commanded, we're not going to do it. Amen? Is that cool? I would dare to say, hope not, I would dare to say there are people in this room who will leave in years to come because they're going to say, well, why don't we do this? And I'm going to say, because it's not in the Bible. So, use Scripture properly. Number four, and this is the most important one. Do not stumble over the truth about Christ. Do not stumble over the truth about Christ. Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That Christian character and joy is only present in the Christian. And this says, that Christian person is the one who is not offended by Christ. Now we ask, as Christians, we would say, why would anybody stumble over Christ? Why would anybody be offended 
by Christ. Why would anybody, if we use this word, why would anybody be caused to fall into unbelief because of Jesus? Now like John Calvin's answer, he says, it is because He appears with His cross, disfigured and despised and exposed to the reproaches of the world. Because He calls us to share in His afflictions. Because His glory and majesty, being spiritual, are despised by the world. And in a word, because His doctrine is totally at variance with our senses. That's why people struggle over Christ. And Scripture tells us these things about Christ. This this Jesus, fully God, eternal second person of the Trinity, incarnate as a human being, born in a barn. The first people to hear the message of His birth were a bunch of dirty shepherds that were looked down upon anyway. Goes to the shepherds and tells them, lives as a human being under the law of God, fully obedient to the law of God. Never sinned. No deceit was found on His lips. And He's crucified at the hands of evil and wicked men for the sins of His people. Can you see why that might be a stumbling block to a lost world? Because we're going to go to them and we're going to carry this message and we're going to say, look back 2,000 years ago, that naked carpenter hanging on a cross, bow down to Him. That's a stumbling block. That will push people into unbelief. That is the scandal of the Gospel that for our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. We are given and declared righteous because of His righteousness. Not because of our righteousness. And we just have to trust. We just trust in Christ. Repent of our sin and trust in His righteousness. And that is a stumbling block to the world. And the person of Jesus Christ, the carpenter from Nazareth, has been a stumbling block from the very beginning, as was prophesied. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. It was prophesied 600, 700 years before Jesus was born. This man will be the block of stumbling. They will not be able to get over this rock of offense. And they stumble, Peter says, for two reasons. Because they disobey the Word and because they were destined to do so. Again, God wields the power of sovereignty. So don't stumble over the person of Christ. If you struggle with who Christ is and what it means to trust in Him, then beg and plead with God to give you eyes to see. Wrestle with God. Take hold of God and don't let Him go until He allows you to see the beauty of Christ rather than see Him as a stumbling block. Seek Him while He may be found. Don't let go. Don't just say, well, that's too hard for me. I can't understand it. But take hold. And don't let go wrestle like Jacob wrestled all night. And if you have to walk away limping, walk away limping. But at least you can say, 
But I've got the promise. I've got the covenant promise. Careful how you hear. The sermon has been delivered. Now it starts. The work starts. Don't, don't let this just breeze away. Now get back to the rest of my day. Now the work begins. Let's pray.